May you this day be blessed. Hi there, I'm Sister Catherine Herms and thank you for joining me today as we explore the love that is the heart of the world and the work of the heart that helps us become this love and discover it in the world so that all the world becomes to us like the miraculous burning bush. We have been invisibly stamped with the signature, the seal of the God who bends over us with such tenderness. I call this work of the heart, heart work. Heart work exists because people realize they've come to a place in their life where they, they want spiritual direction. Maybe there are too many options, or maybe there seems to be no options at all. Perhaps they have new eyes to see, or perhaps they're longing for this new sight. Some have touched the sunrise within their soul and want more. Others are longing for this spiritual gift. Sometimes our hearts are filled with nagging questions that run like background music in our life. Do I matter to God? Does God see me? Does God hear me? Does God get what's happening to me and what it means? In heart work, we answer the essential question, who am I now in this situation of my life and in these relationships? To learn more about heart work and what God has led me to do in the world, or just to stay in touch, visit touchingthesunrise.com. It's the end of a liturgical year and it's November. Those wonderful, lovely, long days and long nights when the weather becomes cooler, the leaves begin to fall, and we all look forward to Advent and Christmas. But in these weeks, there's such an important message for us. The church itself uses readings from the Maccabees and Revelations in Mass. And from both of these sets of readings, which alternate years, we learn some important things that can help us as we live in the world today. It becomes very clear from these readings that God has a purpose, and this purpose unfolds in history. We learn that it's possible for people, individuals, groups, and nations to seem to thwart that purpose of God, but they cannot overturn it. And that if we are going to have hope, we need to take the long view. And only by taking the long view are we able to act courageously and effectively for the coming of the kingdom of God. If we look at Maccabees, we look at the Seleucid Emperor Antiochus, who, who came to Jerusalem with his army, and he treated the inhabitants of Jerusalem with great cruelty, um, sparing not even those who led him into the city. He dismantled the walls of the city. He burned the finest parts of the city. Um, Josephus, the historian at that time, tells us that he carried away all the vessels, the golden vessels, all the treasures of the temple. He put a stop to the sacrifices 
He polluted the altar by offering up swine on it, knowing that this was against law of Moses. And he compelled the Jews to give up their worship of God. So at that time, there was a priest named Mattathias. And Mattathias lived with his sons in the village of Modin. So some of the king's men came to Modin to compel the Jews to sacrifice as he had ordered. And because Mattathias was a leader there, they wanted him to be the first to sacrifice before all the people, knowing that if he did so, his fellow citizens would follow. Mattathias, of course, refuses, saying that even if all others obeyed Antiochus' commands, he and his sons never would. I can imagine Mattathias standing with his sons on the edge of a, of a mingling and perhaps nervous crowd as the king's messengers set up the altar of sacrifice. At that point, I was wondering, did he have a clear plan for what he should do? <clears throat> What did he feel? Did he feel angry? Did he feel devastated at what was happening to his people? Maybe he felt defeated. Did he feel afraid? Or did he feel determined or uncertain? When we read the story of the Maccabees, it's really about us. It's about us who live in this tumultuous era of disorienting defeatism. Watching the world and national news unfold in, in tweets and posts and commentary is, is almost too difficult sometimes to comprehend. The changes that are engulfing the globe are not straightforward. They are complex and inexorable. With fake news added in, it's, it's almost impossible to know what really happened before it was twisted into the service of someone's agenda. We might find ourselves standing on the sidelines, wondering what is going to happen, and perhaps what is this going to mean for me and my family and our future. It was clear that Mattathias and his sons knew one thing. They knew who they were. And they had already decided to remain faithful to the covenant of their fathers. He said, God forbid that we should forsake the law and the commandments. We will not obey the words of the king. They did not seem to have a plan for what they should do next, or at least the biblical author doesn't tell us this. It was when a certain Jew came forward to offer sacrifice on the altar that Mattathias sprang into action, filled with zeal, and tore down that altar, marching through the streets, calling forth the zeal of the others in the city and leading them to the mountains where they would continue their resistance. This example of Mattathias and his sons is, is a delicate and unmistakable intertwining of hope and action. Hope is an essential foundation for response, for zeal, 
for action. But hope doesn't replace action. Both are needed. In these confusing times of uncertain change, we can follow Mattathias' example. He may not have known exactly what part he was meant to play in the history of his people. He may not have known the next step he should take. But he had the hope that in the long view of salvation history, God has a plan that cannot be defeated. Because of that hope, he could risk facing what needed to be changed with purposeful action at the service of God's glory. We're also approaching the feast of Christ the King directly before the first Sunday of Advent. In Teresa of Jesus in her book, The Way of Perfection, she talks about God as an eternal king, and she speaks to him and says to him, you are this eternal king. You do not have a borrowed kingdom. And she talks about how when she hears in the creed, your kingdom will have no end. She feels happy. She feels joy. And she praises the Lord who is the king. She blesses him for his kingdom will endure forever. We can read about this kingdom of Christ that endures forever, even in the prophecies of the Old Testament. We read his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all kings shall serve and obey him. He shall sit and rule and shall speak peace unto the nations. We read in the book of Revelation that the lamb that was slain is worthy to receive power and divinity and wisdom and strength and honor. To him belong glory and power forever and ever. In the book of Colossians, we read that Christ the King is the King of all kings. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For in him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And this title belongs to Jesus inasmuch as he is God. He is the perfect image of the Father. But Jesus proclaims himself as king in the Gospel of John when he stands before Pilate. He stands before him covered in blood and humiliation and pain and rejection by the world. He proclaims his kingship not in the midst of of an enthusiastic crowd proclaiming his glory. Um, He doesn't proclaim his kingship at the moment when he is creating miracles and, and everyone is in awe of him. But when he stands bound with chains, about to be condemned to death, before a crowd that's saying, crucify him, a crowd that's, that's thirsting for his blood. He proclaims his kingship a few moments before he is dragged to Calvary on that painful and devastating way of the cross. He proclaims his kingship just before it will be announced on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. 
Jesus could have proclaimed his kingship before adoring crowds, enthusiastic crowds, but at that moment, he had fled from them when they wanted to crown him king. Instead, he proclaims himself king in the midst of this moment of utter humiliation, in his passion. And thus he affirms to Pilate, to the world, and to us, clearly, that his kingdom is not of this world. That his kingdom is so sublime that no dishonor, no humiliation, no insults can eclipse that kingdom. Jesus shows us that he prefers to manifest his kingship as a conquest of blood, of mercy, and of love. This is the king that we proclaim on the feast of Christ the King. We should go to meet this divine king with all the yearning of our soul. Jesus presents himself to us under the appearance so human, so loving, so welcoming. He, he stretches out his arms on the cross to invite us, to invite everyone to come to him. He shows us the wound in his side as a symbol of his love. We should beseech him. We should plead with him to be the sole ruler, yes, of the world, but also of our minds and our hearts, the complete master of our will. In the perplexities of the politics and the changing history that we are living in the world today, Yes, we know and we proclaim, and like Teresa, we have joy that, that Jesus is the King, that the kingdom is here, that it is coming in glory. But right now, we need Christ to be the King of our own minds, of our own wills, and of our own hearts. Like Mattathias, we need to stand in the kingdom for the kingdom, for the glory of God. And in order to do that, we need to proclaim Christ as my king. He needs to conquer those parts of our mind, our will, and our heart that are not yet part of his kingdom. And only then, only then, are we able to truly stand in the world as members of his kingdom for the glory of God, proclaiming God as king and carrying out our role, whatever it may be, as members of that kingdom for the sake of the salvation of the world. In the words of Sister Carmela of the Holy Spirit, we can pray O Divine King, Most Amiable Jesus, my Redeemer, my Savior, my Spouse, my Master and Model,
I redeem today the total consecration of my being to you, begging you to take absolute dominion over me. And in the words of Blessed James Abiriani, This is the path of holiness, to always be disciples of this Master, to always live in the Master, to always share the sentiments of the Master, to always reveal the Master, to aim for unity or synthesis, which is found wholly and solely in Christ, the Master, who is our King. The passages from Scripture from the book of Maccabees and the Passion of our Lord, as we have looked at it in the Gospel of John, are not cozy, comforting passages of Scripture. But as we approach the Feast of Christ the King, and the Advent Christmas meditations on the amazing mystery of God's birth in time. These passages of scripture help us find our feet in this world, in the light of the kingdom and the world to come. Sometimes we can feel as though we were lost in a deep forest where no clear paths are visible. A blend of spiritual guidance, mentorship, and counseling, the Heartwork community is a place where you learn to explore, love, open, and nourish the paradise of your heart, your deep heart, where God is already dwelling within you. You will discover that though you waited for light to appear from outside, the paths of light are imprinted in your heart where the Trinity abides and we learn to walk them through the valleys and mountaintops of lived experience. Heartwork is a process of accompaniment that honors your story, creates a space in which you can safely explore what is happening with you, gain the tools to come home to your heart where the Trinity is already at work, be recreated by love, and set out again. To learn more about Heartwork and what God has led me to do in the world, or just to stay in touch, visit touchingthesunrise.com.